Hello, my name is Marianne Kellman, and I'm the host of this podcast series. There are two things that we, the team behind the CBS Sustain podcast, has been wanting to do for a while. One is to conduct an interview with Michael Schulz, who is not only an esteemed professor at the Department of Organization, but also chair of the Carlsberg Foundation, one of Denmark's strongest and most influential research funds. The other is to make a live recording of the interview so that more people could hear what Mikan had to say in person. In April 2023, both wishes came true. CBS invited us to host a session at the so-called Green Business Forum, where researchers and practitioners debate issues pertaining to the green transition. We immediately jumped at the chance to invite Mikan to do a live recording. Thankfully, Mikan agreed and more than 50 people attended the event. So what you are about to hear is a recording of an interview with Mike Schulz about her ongoing research project called Making Distant Futures Actionable, conducted by associate professor at the Department of Organization, Emil Huster. Hello and welcome everyone to this uh, session, which uh, in one way is a session about uh, green transition, innovation but also about uh, podcast recording so it's an uh, it's an odd combination but uh, but one that I think will uh, hopefully be successful one of the uh, people that we've been trying uh, repeatedly to get to do a podcast is uh, one of our most esteemed colleagues uh, Michael Schulz and uh, Michael will you join us here let's give uh, Michael a hand Mike is, as uh, some of you know, uh, most of you perhaps, a professor at the Department for Organization, has been for a while. Yes, yes. You don't ask a cool no, no, age, no, no, no. you don't that's ask it, about seniority. That's why <laughs> And um, has obviously conducted research on all kinds of things. I think you started out by doing a lot about culture, organizational culture. That turned into organizational identity at some point. And uh, lately, uh, Mike has uh, been... Editing or is still editing a uh, Nordisk-funded research project um, on green transition, and it's called "Making Distant Futures Actionable: Innovating for a Zero Carbon Future." There's a map of uh, who's involved and uh, the exact title of uh, of the project. But Mike, so. You received the, those money uh, a few years ago, and uh, you've been on it for a while. And I've promised not to ask you about like the specific uh, results and the, the prescriptive uh, things about what we should do for the green transition, because you obviously haven't completed the research project yet. You are still in the middle of it. But can you just very briefly um, tell us a little bit about what, what's the project about and who's involved? Thank you very much, Emil. And first of all, I would say thank you for this opportunity. I should say I didn't deliver hand in a script. <laughs> I was told this had to be totally off the cuff. We That's had it. a little planning this morning. Here you could do it. But it's just to say that, that there is no script uh, on behind. And I, I should also say it sounds as if this money just came along. It was a year-long process to apply for money with the Nordic Foundation. That was a learning in its own right. But long story short, I think we are all aware that climate change is the biggest issue confronting all of us. And I thought for myself, my colleagues, what do you want to spend the last 10 years of your career? And I thought climate change, whatever we can contribute from an organization theory perspective would be very important. The other is we are business school. And I think at that point in time, at least, there's a lot of discussion on climate regulation, taxation, governments. But there has been less focus on the role of companies. 
both as part of the solution and, of course, also as part of the problem. So I think our starting point was also to say, what, how do con companies contribute to the green transition? What is their role? Then when you go a little closer, you realize that several companies around the world are actually setting up quite ambitious targets for how they would like to reduce CO2 emissions and otherwise contribute to climate change. And at the same time, the technologies are fairly unknown. We have this hope for technological optimism or hockey stick or whatever, but long story short, there's what some of our informants call the gray zone between the need for action, the very distant clear goals, and then this territory of how do we get to those goals. So our ambition was to say and show how companies are actually struggling when navigating to reach those climate target goals. And the last thing I want to say is at that point in time, I think the majority of the academic research addressing companies was showing all the difficulties. Mm -hmm. I mean, from greenwashing to letting it become business as usual to short-termism, which means that all the finance people always get their way. And every time a good innovation comes up for the green transition, we'll say some other time because money is short or the time horizon is too long, et cetera, et cetera. So we also wanted to give some hope. Although we have learned that hope is not a strategy in this country, <laughs> I still think it's very, very important to provide hope. So we, we deliberately picked companies that in each of their industry seem to be genuinely ambitious about the green transition. So we, we went for Arla, Ørsta, and Nordisk. I can come back to that. But we went for some companies where all our evidence told us that, that there were genuine aspirations to become more carbon neutral, to contribute to the green transition. And I think that was our hope, and it still is then in that way to provide inspiration for other companies for how to uh, address the gray zone and you can say become more actionable about the distant future goals that a lot of companies are defining these years. Yeah. And uh, in, in a way, like when I think about your project, it always strikes me as a very ambitious project, not only because of the scope of it, but also ambitious in the sense that the easy thing to do would be to uh, go the critical route of uh, of saying this is purely greenwashing or oh, here again, the, uh, the fine ideals are corrupted by everyday practice or profit-seeking or wh whatever. And, and in that sense, I think it's, uh, it's commendable that you, yeah, that you pick that uh, ambitious route of actually fi figuring out what are these companies actually doing to make these distance futures uh, actionable. I was wondering if you could give a little bit insights into the uh, specific cases, for instance. So as we've already said, you haven't sort mm -hmm. of reached any conclusions yet, but I'm sure that you've uncovered a lot of uh, complexities or processes that didn't unfold as expected, ripple effects, whatever. Could you say, for instance, let's take uh, Erstel. The case of Erstel, are there any specific uh, uh, issues or dynamics you want to uh, tell us about today? Just go one step back and you can say, so, so, so in picking companies, I think that's always the issue we're having. Which company should we pick? It's a combination of who would you like to work with and who wants to work with you. Hmm. And I think in that sense, we were lucky. And I hope everybody in this room will also experience that CBS has a high good standing in the business community in that sense that access was, if not easy, hmm. then possible. Uh, and, and we chose companies in different industries 
that are both part of the problem and part of the solution. And our first learning point was everybody is part of the problem and the solution. And and Erste was obviously because energy and renewable energy is absolutely essential to meet not only Denmark's climate goal, but the goals in the whole world. Arla Foods is agriculture, and I'm sure we are all aware that they are facing massive challenges in agriculture, but also that we have a need for food. So just to close down Arla and close down Danish agriculture is not part of the solution either. And last but not least, you can say Nordisk. I think it's fair to say that we were a bit encouraged to, to bring that on, but life science is a very important industry in Denmark. What became the, the insights when you took one step back was that if you look at climate goals, there's CO2 emissions, there's biodiversity that has come up as a very important dimension as well, and there's a whole discussion of waste and plastic waste. So we were a bit inspired by these three UN goals to zoom in on what do we want to know about these companies. So returning to Ørsted, I mean, at, at some point, Ørsted is a, it's a fantastic story. It's a front mover and first mover globally in renewable energy and offshore wind energy. So in one, at one level, you could say, let's just study all the things that they're doing right. We probably know a, a lot about that, but we also, when we go a little closer, you can say, of course, they also have challenges in addressing the green transition. One is the issue of all the steel they're using. How do, can they get access to green steel, the cement that they're using to build the wind farms? How, what do you do with all the big uh, blades once they are old? And last but not least, and that's what we ended up studying, what happens to the marine environment when you plop down all these wind farms? And if you read the news yesterday, I think the government has just decided to to, uh, provi- to give admission to many more wind farms in the Danish uh, marine environment. So in that sense, Ørsted is both providing all these energies, but also trying to find out what are some of the challenges Involved. These are just the ones related to climate. Then there's a whole discussion that we also just heard about, about the local communities and climate justice, etc. And how do you enact with the local community when you build a huge wind farm in that area? We decided then to focus, to zoom in on the marine biodiversity. And that was both because it's a new and upcoming area in the climate debate. It's an area where Ørsted is hoping also to be first mover. And I think it is an area where it is interesting from an organization point of view, how climate change also forces organizations to find solutions at a much closer relationship with nature's own time, as we could talk with, on the forces of nature. So in that sense, and of course, there's a little bit of hype about nature-based solutions or nature-positive solutions, where Erster would say, how can we not only, you can say, restore or ensure that we don't damage the marine environment, how can we perhaps even make initiatives like artificial reefs or various undersea constructions that the marine ecosystem might thrive on so we can actually add something positive? Mm-hmm. So that's sort of an interesting angle because at some level you can say it's very much a negative debate, but at least there are some companies that are trying to say whatever we have to do, which we know we must do in order to reach our climate goals, can we also have 
unintended positive consequences, if you will. And the last uh, thing that we found as researchers was interesting is when you talk about technologies and innovation for green transition, it's very often about scaling a solution, scaling a technology, and you know, using it all over the world in bigger and bigger and more and more cheap scales. When you talk about biodiversity, every place is different. And that was, uh, Ørsted has actually a big wind farm in Taiwan, let alone the geopolitical challenges, but they have a wind farm in Taiwan, which is a completely different territory than the North Sea, than probably outside of the U.S. coast. So this discussion of scaling, which, which means a lot in this innovation, becomes from local to local to local, in a sense. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was interesting. And for us as organization scholars, let's be honest, we know nature is out there, but it's something that most of organization theory has tried to conceal organizations from nature. Yeah. And I think in these new solutions or search of new solutions, you will find ways in which organizations are trying to work with nature yeah. or create solutions that are based on nature's premises in other ways. I mean, that's necessary also. But I think at a very small scale, that part of Erster's activities we found were, were interesting. Yeah. I think you're very right in pointing to, to organization studies as being a discipline concerned almost exclusively with humans. And uh, if nature is included, it's always as a nuisance, as something that disturbs the human fabric of... Yeah, organizing. resource, like a yeah, right, exactly. resource that yeah. you just exploit. Yes. So to me, that has been, I think, to the whole project team that you can see up there, that has been a, um, you can say for us, it's been it's been a revelation and an, and an interesting discussion that has taken us quite long in how do we then conceive nature but that's an, that's another no, more theoretical discussion we're also having are there any of these uh, dynamics or complexities that you also see in the case like Anna for instance yeah you can say in Anna it's it's in a sense it's more obvious but but that being said uh, Arla, as I'm sure you all know that's a lot of pharma it's a cooperative So you can say they have the challenge from an organizational point of view that the owners of the company are also the ones who actually have to do the transition. Because mm. sometimes you may have a board, you may have external people who say, go do that. In this case, you have to convince the owners living with the consequences on an everyday basis to make these transformations. Um, and in Arla's case, we are studying a um, experiment in what is called regenerative farming. If you go into any kind of food industry, you will see that the new black is regenerative farming, where you're trying to find ways of creating uh, agricultural practices that restore the nature. Instead of exploiting soil, of course you exploit the soil and then you use the soil. But how do you restore the soil quality? How do you restore and preserve and perhaps even contribute to the natural environment around you? It's a big discussion that I won't go into. How does that relate to organic and uh, farming? But let's just say it's there's a search for very new profound agricultural practices, not just in Denmark, but among a lot of food companies also. Arla, they both have agriculture, they have animals, cows in particular. So what they have done, they have set up a pilot project of 24 farms in four different countries where all these farmers are trying to experiment and learn what does it imply on a very day-to-day -day basis in how we 
feed our cow, how cows, how we treat our raw materials in order to become regenerative. And as a small example, I'm not Sonny uh, Sue is doing this sub project, and one of the stories she came up with is they they have to teach the cows to to eat longer grass, because they have to learn to have mixed and you sometimes you will use different types of grass that may be more climate resistant. I mean it's at that level. Yeah. And the other thing is that no two farms are the same. Mm. Because if you go to soil quality, if you live, if you're based in Funen or Sealand versus in Jutland, the soil quality is very different, and the, the seeds that you may, the the um, various variations that you may actually grow on your farm may differ. So I think we have gotten an enormous respect for the complexity, mm. and on the other hand, Arne, corporate Arne. They are sitting there developing one measurement system after the other so these farmers can actually find out to document that they are regenerative. Because I think that's also what we all know, that no matter which climate areas we are talking about, it is accompanied by a huge need for documentation, registration, and, and, and this is no exception. Hmm. But anyway, it's the same local to local to local. And um, but we have been met, and Sonny uh, in particular has been met with an extreme openness. Uh, so she is, but she's studying this at the farm level, because when we make the future actionable in these areas, th this is what has to happen. Just as in education practices, I mean, what happens in every classroom is what matters. Not, with all due respect, not what job management says <laughs> about teaching, but how do we teach and interact with the actual students? And it's exact same here. Yeah. It's so interesting, I think, to hear you talk about uh, Arla and Ørsted as two different cases that in many ways have similar complexities sure. or at least a lot of complexities uh, because Ørsted is, as we also talked about before this session, Ørsted is so easily seen as part of the solution, whereas Arla is commonly seen as part of the problem. And I think one of the findings that you uncover is that everyone wants to be engaged in this and there are just so many complexities and difficulties when you open the black box of the green transition. I'm not sure everyone, but let's say, as I go back to my beginning, we chose companies yeah. that at least have been very clear in their targets. And yeah. Arla has a green ambition towards 2050, which is very clear and very committing. That doesn't mean they don't ha have a wealth of issues and challenges, as I think we are all aware. But you get a profound respect mm. for companies trying. And I think this granular complexity also shows you what is at stake yeah. in order to make the green transition happen. And of course, you can say, going back to our temporality agenda, I don't think the individual farmer thinks 2050, but he or she has somehow committed to part of the ALA cooperative. And in that sense, it is this balance between the company and any company trying to maintain and track and register and rethink these targets. And what is interesting in Ørsted's case is that it's moving closer. Mm -hmm. I mean, Ørsted has moved their targets much closer to our present day, probably both because they have succeeded more fast than anticipated, but let's be honest, also because they have gotten a lot of competition mm. and their competitors are not uh, they are they are doing the same thing mm. to to some extent. So I think there's also a race, a positive race, yeah. 
against moving targets closer to 2040, 2030, 25, in some cases, depending on the specific area. It's interesting. One of our, uh, an external teacher here at CBS used to work at what was called Dong previously. And he always says that 15 years ago, we sort of branded ourselves on being the best at burning coal. <laughs> and 10 years later, we branded ourselves on being the best at not doing so. Yeah. And, uh, and, and that, of course, speaks to how quickly the agenda can change, but also, I guess, the adaptability of such corporations when they actually uh, do uh, stuff to, to, to mitigate the climate uh, challenges. I mean, Jonathan. And Federson, who is the one in charge of the Earth Project, he has actually done historical. We, we started to do a historical study because I think most of us in this room will acknowledge that that the grief, that the transformation of that company is probably one of the biggest and most successful change processes in Danish industry in recent history. And I think we, so we started actually the project. It's, I just haven't mentioned it by studying the whole first. Uh, Winnebu, the first wind farms and that whole transition. And ironically, for, for more than 10 years, some of these early steps were latent because there was simply not enough traction in the market for, for renewable uh, energy. So that's a super interesting case in its own right. But you're absolutely right. And, and you can say, again, it gives you hope. If they're able to do that mm. in such a short time, what else can we do yeah. in such a short time? Exactly. And so there's a final case, Novo Nordisk, uh, which, uh, from what I understand, uh, shows something a little bit different because its product is uh, different. But could you say a little bit about Novo Nordisk? Sure. I mean, I think uh, Novo Nordisk has almost been a classic case in ESG targets and sustainability almost long before it became in fashion. Um, so they are, in a lot of their emissions and their manufacturing systems, they are quite ahead of the game. But of course, there's a challenge, and, and some of their big, you can say, efforts is towards a more circular economy. And I think if you think of medical products, and I'm sure all of you sometimes use medical products of various sorts, there's a lot of, of a plastic involved. And in particular, if you're a diabetic, you use these injection pens, which are one uh, one, one, one mm -hmm. injection pens that produces a gigantic amount of plastic waste. So one of their uh, big challenges, which we decided to focus on, is what they call the Take Back Program, which at the first step is a way to find, in a sense, an organizational system where patients can deliver back their disposable injection pens and they can bring it back to Novo Nordisk or a recircular uh, cycling facility in order to reuse that plastic waste. And that requires an enormous systemic dimension because the patient may go to the pharmacy, to the doctor, should it send it by mail. Uh, and, and for the time being, they're doing various pilots in Denmark and two other markets. But the idea is also to roll that out at the global scale. And I think you can, you can imagine that the infrastructure is very different in each country. So how do they translate such a model. That's the first thing, that just to, to get it back, so to speak, mm. take it back. And the next issue, which, which uh, I think is also part of the circular agenda, is what to then to make use of all that plastic. Uh, and I'm not an expert here, but is it clean enough to be used for the medical purposes? Should it be used for other things? Can it be completely decomposed? Uh, and they are experimenting with a lot of different ways of, of doing that. But I know from my 
uh, life in Carlsberg, where there's a lot of plastic from draft systems, green plastic, and you can make furniture, you can make tables, but you mean how many furni much furniture do you need? So there's also an interesting discussion that yes, you take it back and you recycle, and then what? Mm -hmm. So that's it. that's one other part of the challenge, and of course their ambition, not surprisingly, is to design injection systems that could be refillable in some way, like aluminium pens or whatever. So they also have a circular mindset in their R and D practices. And Miriam uh, first, uh, who is conducting the Novo Nordic project, is both looking into the Take Back pro project, which is again is a pilot, a very ambitious pilot, I should say, but is defined in as a pilot project, and also to the the learning in the R&D activities. So that's yet another example of waste. And you can see, what does that really entail? Mm -hmm. And I think it is interesting that there's both this collaboration with all these institutions, pharmacies, post offices, medical doctors, etc., and then the discussion of how do you then recycle. And I know they have a collaboration with Lego, for example, in order to how do you make the most sustainable recycling of mm. plastic. It's a big issue. Bala has also, and that we we had a we have a long history with Ala, and we also studied their um, uh, packaging strategy in a, in a previous research project. And it just, I'm sure, just look if some of you, we all collect sort of a garbage, and at least in my case, my plastic bin always gets filled very very fast. Then comes paper, and then metal is very little. But the plastic, you have to sit there and press almost. It just shows how gigantic amounts of plastic we are getting, particularly from food packaging, but also from online, this and online, that. So the amount of waste we are all surrounded by is gigantic. So I think it is not by accident that both Arla and, and Novo Nordisk, from their various angles, have been very... Waste is a big part of the long-term climate agenda. And I think that that was important. And that since it, it was important to look at the UN as well and see, yes, there are connected targets between CO2, biodiversity, and, and waste. Well, that's super interesting. Also because, again, uh, like nature, waste is also something that we usually forget in, in this kind of research, right, Dale? In political debates, I guess, like why don't they take more initiatives? Well, maybe it is because there are some a lot of complexities in the waste that is generated by some of these more uh, carbon neutral friendly uh, initiatives yeah. that are that are conducted. Interesting. So, um, your the the title of your project is about temporality. Like there's there's some kind of distant future, like high hopes for what we're gonna do in 2050 or something like that. And then there is tomorrow. And can you see anything like, um, can you see any similarities or differences in terms of how how do they do this? How do they make these distant goals actionable? I mean, yes, it's that was for sure our starting point. And it, and it still is hopefully also our ending point. And you can say our first idea was, it may sound simple, but instead of making this distinction, either you are short-term or you are very long-term, how do you connect them? How do you see the long-term through the short-term and how do you see the short-term through the long-term? That was our big theoretical idea when we made the whole application. Then if you try to translate that into empirical work, 
short term is is often the ongoing solutions. What are you working on? What do you know something about? At the one hand, that that's what you can act on now, but you also need those distant future imaginaries or imagined future goals in order to see how could things be different. Because in order to direct your current activities, you have to have some imagination for how it could be different. And I think that's important because we all know if we're stressed out, it's very difficult to think out of the box. So the first thing is that that in all of these three companies, they actually spend quite a lot of effort to try and imagine the world, the solution different, whether it's the circular uh, economy or it's a net zero agriculture, how does it look like? So the first condition is that you actually are able to define something you think about as an, I mean, what would, what would be the greatest education in 2050 or just 2030? It's not a simple question to answer. So, so that's been the first thing. And then we have studied how in these, particularly in the strategy process of ALA, I should say, because that's what we have the most um, data. We've studied how they have been able to shift between those specific solutions and the imagined futures. And they have done that in combining, I think, three ways of working. One is what you call bracketing. It's Karl Weick's sense-making. Put a bracket around something. Because as we talk about, you can get overwhelmed by complexity. There's so much you can do. So start, for example, with the milk carton and the little plastic thing on top of the milk carton. Mm. That's a heck of a lot of plastic if you scale it up as other. So let's... How would you imagine, for example, the future packaging of milk? Should you be able to eat it? Is it completely paper-based? Is it based on, you know, new corn sorts that feed into the cows? What do I know? But it's very important that you stay specific to begin with. Because the other issue is you're able to narrate the complexity around the system. Because, for example, there are suppliers. You don't produce everything yourself when you're early. You buy things from other people. You have the farmers. What do they have to do? The consumers, will they ever be willing to drink this? Or how does it feel? So the narrating capacity is extremely important. That's, of course, where a lot of our students could contribute because the ability to connect the dot in a better narrative system is very, very important. And last but not least, as in any company, you need to be able to calculate the implications. And it's quite interesting because one of the first things you observe with climate issues is everything is calculated both in terms of CO2 equivalents and, of course, also in terms of money. And, and actually, it's interesting that companies, they talk about guesstimates. It's okay not to be precise. Mm-hmm. So you also have to be a little more flexible on your financial rigorism and say, we just need in big numbers, what may that mean? So if you combine that ability to be focused, narrate the, the big picture and make some, let's say, common sense calculation, both on the environment and the economic, as you shift back and forth what you can do and what you might do, our experience is that is what moves them furthest towards the future. Whether it will hold up in the other companies (laughs) is to see, but that's a super, Miriam has done a, I should say, outstanding study and has been given access to 40 meetings throughout a year where we have studied in great detail. 
course, you won't find the same with the farmer, right? No. This was a corporate strategy process, but it gives us some ideas of what corporations have to do, and you cannot leave it to the finance people alone. You cannot leave it to the communications people alone. So it's that intersection also at a corporate level, which which is extremely important, and that is no small um, issue in from an organization point of view. So, like, on the back of, uh, you've been at this project for two years, I guess. Yep. Are you optimistic on our behalf, on the world's behalf? Uh, what's uh, what's your sort of personal feeling about this? I would say on a normal day when you even read the newspaper, <laughs> you get insanely pessimistic, right? Yeah. And when I hear about these sub projects, I get very optimistic. Not overly technology optimistic in the sense that everything will be fine, but that there is enough genuine force in this world that at least in some areas will make a difference. Uh, we sh- we shall see. But I think it is it what we are surrounded by, the magnitude of our problems and the fact that Denmark is also filing, falling behind in so many ways. I think there's a lot to say about the impact of corporations. If governments can't get their acts together, a lot of companies are certainly making commitments that really will take us into a different future in a good sense of the word. And so... The final question, we're here at the at the university, at the business school, and uh, you're conducting such a study. A lot of other people are involved in studies on uh, on the green transition. And so from, from, from your experience, what can we as researchers do? I mean, how, how can we assist in the green transition? No, I think we can, we shouldn't stop being critical. I mean, I'm not saying we should just go out and be optimistic and study the success stories, but we should also study the success stories. And we should be realistic, critical, pragmatic about what the challenges are. And of course, as I think is always the aspiration for for CBS or any researcher, is to contribute with some kind of inspiration slash guidelines. I'm very hesitant to say best practices because I just said that every situation is different. But some guidelines and inspirations, I think, is, is super important and also for our students to learn more about what it requires in terms of organizing and management. And I think that is very important. Last fall, from Norman Nordis gave a talk recently at CBS where he stressed the importance of non-linear thinking. Mm-hmm. And I think this ability to shift back and forth between what you can do in the immediate presence and your future goals is a nonlinear thinking because it's not from one to the other. It's back and forth and it's seeing them in the light of each other, which is a slightly different mindset than a causal logic that we might normally be used to. So I think the training of our mindset both to create narrative and for nonlinear thinking is very important. So an attempt also, I guess, to engage more people to to ask you guys and everyone else to be involved in these issues and train the non-linear thinking and be aware of the complexities both in terms of the temporal register and the way that uh, these goals are translated into practice. Mike, I just want to say uh, thank you so much for sharing uh, your insights on these uh, three cases and the project as such. Let's, uh, let's give Mike a hand. Thank you.